This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking about Bodies and Transformers in Taiwanese Contemporary Theater. This book was published by Routledge in 2020. In this book, Liang develops the theory of bodily transformation, proposing the concept of transformance. This is a conscious and rigorous process of self-cultivation toward a reconceptualized body. Liang shows how theater practitioners of minoritized cultures adopt transformance as a strategy in order to counteract the embodied practices of ideological and economic hegemony. Focusing on the development of transformers between the year of 2000 to 2008, this book analyzes five reconceptualized bodies in Taiwan's contemporary theater. They are the energized, the rhythmic, the ritualized, the joyous, and the reproductive bodies. Today, we are delighted to have its author, Liang Peiling, here with us on the show. Eileen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Li Ping, for inviting me. Thank you for accepting this invitation. And um, I was wondering whether you can begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and also your research interests. Sure. Um, so I'm an ethnographer, a practitioner, researcher, writer, and educator of theater and performance. I'm very interested in storytelling through shape-shifting, as well as cross-cultural dynamics of the performing body. Um, my research interests focus on uh, most recently, um, I've been focusing on island perspectives, health and wellness, as well as the ergonomics of movement and object design in performance. Um, I'm currently an associate professor of theater studies at the National University. Uh, yeah, so that's me. 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing with us. And、um, I want to know a little bit about how do you start this project, and then can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration or any of the field work that you have done for this book?、Mm. The book project, in fact, started when I was still a PhD student back in Hawaii. It is based on my、uh, PhD dissertation, in which I wrote about multiculturalism in the contemporary theater of Taiwan. The fieldwork for the dissertation project was conducted from 2005 to 2007, and、uh, during that two years, I was very fortunate to have witnessed and experienced the unprecedented social and cultural transformation that Taiwan was undergoing at the time.、Um, it was a watershed period in Taiwan's modern history. In that, for the very first time, the island was under the governance of the opposition. Of the opposition,、um, much of the social and cultural vibe of that period was clearly registered and reflected in the creativity that I saw in rehearsal rooms and also on the stage.、Um, so the book is really a reflection. On my younger self's reflection on what I saw and experienced in the two thousands,、um, in the book you also find、uh, fragments of my childhood memories from Taiwan and New Zealand.、Um, as a cultural insider and outsider, my positionality constantly shifts throughout my narrative. But wherever my positionality may be, I'm always reading, thinking, and interpreting culture comparatively and relationally. Yeah, so that's the the genesis of my my book. Yeah, thank you, Pelin, for sharing with the three with us the stories and also your experiences about this book. And I want to start it with the title of the book, that is the bodies and also transformers, and especially the term bodies. In your book, you mention that bodies, as the very site of subjugation and discipline, they became the indispensable strategy for action and contestation. And especially, you know, if we think about Taiwan's、uh, history of serial colonization and authoritarian regimes, so firstly, I would like to、uh, hear more about Taiwanese bodies, especially about how Taiwanese body trained, disciplined, and controlled under the Japanese colonial regime and in the nationalist regime. As I have argued in the book,、uh, hegemony would be incomplete without embodiment. So, in theater and performance, we talk a lot about、um, the idea of embodiment.、Um, but of course, embodiment doesn't just happen in theater and performance; it happens in our everyday lives. And、um, I think for the Uh, for the people in Taiwan,、uh, as a collective,、um, you know, historically,、uh, we have been through、uh, several instances of very traumatic events、um, as a collective,、uh, such as the Japanese occupation, as well as, of course, most recently the、um, martial rule um, um, under the KMT. So, so you know, in the book, I kind of highlighted these two periods in which. Um, the Taiwanese bodies were disciplined,、uh, were trained、um, first to become Japanese and then later、um, to become Chinese. And of course,、um, these disciplines come in different forms. For example,、um, it could come in the form of military training.、Um, it could come through it, the education system,、uh, and the goal is really to to 
um, ensure um, the body actually um, embody the imperial, imperial or the colonial ideals um, of being Japanese or being uh, Chinese. Yeah, I especially appreciate that how you analyze these uh, authoritarian regimes and also their narrative and also the control are inscribed and also revealed in this different aspect, especially in terms of bodily training and also you know, military control disciplines as well. So uh, with that, the Japanese colonial regime and later on the KMD rules, but in the 80s and 90s, things start to change. And then so uh, can you tell us a little bit more about in the 80s and 90s, how did Taiwanese bodies rebel and protest against state control and violence? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, in the, in the 1980s and 1990s, um, there was this seizing energy felt in society that people wanted a different kind of being, you know, ontology. Um, so in the 1980s, so there was a period of time when many theater artists took to the streets and gave performances that explicitly subverted or rebelled against the mainstream ideology of the time. And then at the same time, we also see um, political activists who, um, again, they also go on the street um, and they perform very dramatic and theatrical acts as a form of protest. Um, So it was a period of time when I think um, people want to be liberated. Um, People want to be, to... um, to kind of reconceive a different way of being, they want to be themselves. And that's when um, the kind of body diversity in Taiwan began to emerge. Yeah, I especially appreciate that you mentioned that uh, from the 80s and 90s, this performance or these protests become uh, public. They take the form and then the performance and then to be on the street. So in a way that this spectacle or this the, um, theater become an act of protest and that it's not a private act, but it's in the public uh, sphere. So I think this is important later on. We I guess we will touch more upon the uh, process of democratization in Taiwan and also the different fronts of social and political activism uh, in relation to the theater movement as well. Mm. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so so in the 80s and 90s, many of uh, these protests were done publicly. Um, but many of, the, for example, many of the, the theater artists um, by the 2000s, they, as I mentioned in the book, have retreated into the privacy of their rehearsal rooms to innovate new techniques and methods of making theater. So that's, um, that's, that's where my my um, discursive formulation on transformance begin. Yeah, now that we are talking about transformers, so uh, Pelin, can you tell us a little bit about what is transformance, and then exactly what is its relation and connection with the body, mm-hmm. and how? Um, what are the three different aspects of transformers that you analyze in this book? I understand transformance as transformation through performance. 
in the context of post-martial and post-colonial Taiwan, uh, transformers is really a means to repair, to heal, and to recover from the repeated traumatic experience that people of Taiwan have suffered as a collective. Uh, Transformers is also a way for the artists to envision a future and a new subjectivity for themselves. By envisioning their own utopia, rehearsing it, and finally realizing it, and through through their performance, they eventually transform that envisioned utopia into a social, cultural, and linguistic reality. And in the book, I particularly dwelled on three aspects of transformance. First, a physical transfiguration. So I looked at issues pertaining to performer training and uh, their creative and rehearsal process. I also looked at linguistic articulation, in which I examine issues relating to um, writing in their ancestral languages. Um, so in the book, I... I've examined uh, five um, groups of theater makers and all of these groups, they primarily perform in their ancestral languages rather than in the mainstream language, which is um, Mandarin. And we know that many of these languages are on a decline and uh, many of these languages do not have a unified written form. Um, So um, I wanted to find out how do they write a play um, in their ancestral languages? And thirdly, I looked into the reconfiguration of Bali relations. So I was particularly interested in the um, organization and also the daily functioning of the theater groups. How do they organize themselves? And it's interesting to see that many of these groups, they the model uh, which they um, they operate by which they operate um, differs from the mainstream theater in many ways uh, as a way to democratize their uh, working relationship. So yeah, so that's transformance. All right. So um, thinking about transformance, and as you mentioned, it is a way of transformation through performance. And then you mentioned the three different aspects, which I think is very important, and I look forward to discussing detail in a different chapter that you analyze. But before that, um, the, the, your analyze actually focused on a specific period of time in Taiwan, that is 2000 to 2008. So you mentioned briefly uh, earlier, but I was wondering, can you tell us more about what happened during that period? And then um, also specifically, what happened during this period in relation to the contemporary theater in Taiwan? Mm -hmm. So um, as I mentioned, I was very fortunate to be in Taiwan um, during that period of time um, to witness the kind of changes happening in in Taiwan uh, as a society. But also, I think most specifically, I was able to um, witness what was happening uh, in the contemporary theater scene of Taiwan. Um, So it was a period when um, theatrical activities became very lively. um, And we also began to see the... uh, many theater artists, they become more aware about um, their 
uh, you know, uh, post-colonial. So when I say post-colonial, I have to say, you know, there's a, I would put brackets um, around the post of post-colonial because uh, for different ethnic groups, it means different things. Um, so it was, a, what I saw was like during that period of time, many artists, they um, began to formulate or to reconceptualize a body um, of their own. Um, they want to perform in the ancestral languages that have been suppressed for a long time. Um, they are also they are also in search of um, a kind of aesthetics that are that were different um, from the mainstream of that time, um, breaking away from the Huaji tradition um, that was inherited. Um, after the Second World War. So, in fact, I see this whole period of development uh, in relation to the Huaji that came before it, as well as the Shingeki, uh, which is the new drama that Taiwan inherited during the Japanese occupation. Um, and so, yeah, so it was a period of time when everybody was innovating, um, everybody was trying to rebel against um, a system uh, in theater that was inherited and that was hierarchical. Yeah, it sounds uh, for sure a very exciting period, as you mentioned, with the lively theatrical activity, and then you mentioned this kind of drive for experimenting, to explore and search the different aesthetics and also different ways to form and transform the uh, bodily experience in the post-colonial, in parenthesis, post-colonial context as well. And you mentioned that uh, these uh, activities in the 2000 and 2008 is in response, or I should say, uh, to some degree, in challenge to the previous tradition of Huaji and also uh, Shingeki as well. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what is uh, Shingeki and what is Huaji? to contextualize the uh, theatrical um, history in Taiwan. Mm. Um, so Shingeki um, literally means a new drama was uh, introduced uh, to Taiwan during the Japanese occupation period. Um, during the Japanese occupier- uh, occupation period, uh, most of the Shingeki practitioners, they were um, elites, um, people who were you know, educated, and uh, they wanted to use uh, Shingeki as a way to raise people's um, awareness about their colonial condition, um, and also as a way to promote uh, Taiwanese culture. Um, however, um, these group of Shingeki practitioners were completely, of course, wiped out um, towards the end of the Japanese occupation because um, of heavy censorship um, that was imposed by the Japanese government. Um, And later on, of course, with the arrival of the KMT, um, this group of Shingeki practitioners were replaced by um, another group of contemporary theater practitioners, the Huaji practitioners. And so, uh, so when um, the Mandarin-speaking theater practitioners arrived in Taiwan, of course they they took over um, the the contemporary theater scene. Um, but for a long time, because of political suppression, the activities of the uh, of contemporary theater um, 
was of course very suppressed um, because it was heavily censored um, and heavily regulated. Uh, so for a long time, you know, even though there was uh, contemporary theater happening in Taiwan, but it was not as lively, or um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't as lively as as it it should have been. Yeah. Yeah, and especially thinking about the history of theater in Taiwan, or I should say modern Taiwan as well, this kind of process of modernizing uh, arts, literature, and in this case, theater. And as you mentioned, in the Japanese colonial time, uh, Shinkeki, that the practitioners, they do want to use this form or this new form to represent Taiwan. But later on, this effort is actually displaced and also replaced by the um, Mandarin-speaking uh, practitioners. And we see the kind of, the very different language and aesthetics, but also vision in their uh, theatrical uh, production as well. And uh, with that, this is the kind of brief view of the modern Taiwan a theater. But moving on to the contemporary, and as we mentioned earlier, especially between 2000 to 2008, and you analyze uh, different um, groups and also different works as well. And then uh, I was wondering, can you start with what you called the energized body? So can you tell us a little bit more about the energized body and also the uh, theater group and also their performance that you analyze in this book? Uh, yes. So um, for the chapter on energized bodies, I looked at the works by uh, Golden Bell Theater um, or Golden Bell Performance Society. Um, so in the chapter, I um, kind of began my, my narrative about this group um, with reference to Wamolin's um, statement about how um, you know, based on his what what he observed during the martial rule, that um, he argued that you know Taiwanese bodies were atrophying, um, um, Taiwanese bodies were lethargic. Um, the bodies um, did not have a, a lot of energy after all the um, discipline or the um, that the Taiwanese people went through during the, of course, the you know colonial and also during the martial rule period. And um, so responding to that in search of a new body, um, Golden Bao uh, went to the root of Guahi and also Pelahi in search of an energized body. Um, so Golden Bao Theater um, is um, headed by Wang Rongyu and his wife, Yu Huifen. Um, and uh, the theater company is very much um, performer-centered and training-centered. So the, the theater company placed a lot of emphasis on training their actors. Um, so in the chapter, I've talked about how the actors have been trained um, in different systems of Bali practice, such as Taiji Daoyin, uh, Grotowski's um, system of training, and also uh, popular Cultural uh, cultural performances uh, in Taiwan, and um, yeah. So I remember when I was um, doing my field work um, with the Golden Bow Theater, I always remember um, Wang Rongyu or Erga saying that you know telling the actors that you have to be so energetic that 
like uh, like the Guahi performers, when they perform um, in the marketplaces, everybody would be looking at you. They should be looking at you despite all the noises, the traffic, um, you know, and also the um, solicitation of the hawkers trying to sell food and also the smell, the, you know, the nice smell of the food. Um, all these will be competing against you. So you need to be uh, very energized in order to overcome, to, to maintain the attention of the, of the audience. Um, and so, so, you know, a lot of, with this group, they emphasize a lot of training. Um, they also immerse the actors in a lot of the cultural practices or cultural performances we find in Taiwan, like, for example, Che Gu Zhen, Ba Jia Jiang. On a yearly basis, they also attend the Ma Zhu Jin Xiang as a way to train their, their body in order to find um, back the energy um, uh, that Taiwanese people have actually inherited through or in through their uh, folk cultural practices which has been suppressed for a long time um, so the kind of um, aesthetics that Golden Bell wanted to create was something that was very bright very flamboyant um, and in, of course, in Erga's you know, ideal theater, he wanted um, theater to be like a marketplace. It's um, very lively, very crowded, very busy, and very noisy. Um, and he also kind of celebrated and also embraced the idea of cultural eclecticism. Um, so again, um, in the book, I talked about how he often described um, um, the the um, hollow idiomatic expression bamboo pole stuck to a kitchen knife. Um, so it's like anything that is functional and anything that is useful, uh, you can put them together to your greatest uh, use. So that was the spirit, that was the aesthetic value that underlie um, Golden Bow's um, creative practice. Um, and because um, Wang Rongyi comes from a family background of Guahi performers, so his mother um, is a very well-known Guahi performer. Um, so he, he kind of looked back onto his own route uh, to recreate a new kind of contemporary theater uh, through Golden Bell. And, uh, the, uh, and also the theater company operates, I have to say, almost like a Guahi troupe. So the, the actors, um, all of them, they are almost like a family, a pseudo family. So that's that's how it is very different in terms of how they operate in comparison to mainstream um, theater companies. Yeah, and especially this emphasis on the ener- energy and energized body. As you mentioned, that body is now the center of the focus, uh, regardless of the uh, environments or the noises or all other things. Uh, in the performance site, but now the uh, performer, the artist, and also their body should be the center of the focus. And especially also mentioned that the emphasis of their training, that is actually informed by cultural practices. These cultural practices are in touch with reality, with grassroots uh, culture, as you mentioned, uh, local religion, and also uh, folk art performance as well. And for these um, emphasis and also connection to local art, and you mentioned 
歌仔戏、瓜戏 several times. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what is 瓜戏 and maybe some of the feature of these performances for our listeners who might not familiar with this genre? So 瓜戏 is a performance genre which is actually indigenous to Taiwan. It emerged at the beginning.、Um, In the beginning of the 1900s, actually around the time when、um, Japanese occupation started, it first began as like very simple、um, two-person skit、uh, done by agricultural workers as a way to entertain themselves after their work, and then eventually the genre developed、uh, into a fully-fledged、um, theatrical system. Um, which is later known as guahi or guzai shi.、Um, so gua means song,、uh, and he means drama. So as the you know as as indicated in the name,、um, the genre,、um, uh, the the performance is full of songs. Yeah,、um, and so this particular performance genre became very popular、um, in Taiwan,、um, and I think. Because at the time people did not have internet, people did not have TV.、Um, Guahi played a very important role in、um, entertainment and also in、um, the transmission of、uh, information and also in educating the general public about, for example, moral values, about um, histories, um, and.、Um, During so a, a very important、uh, comedic offshoot of、uh, Guahi is called Operahi.、Um, so Operahi emerged、um, during a time when, especially you know,、uh, became very、um, lively. Operahi、um, was during the、uh, Japan towards the end or middle of the Japanese occupation period when、um, the Japanese began to censor. Local cultural practices. So again, the development of genre is very much tied to or informed by the、um, cultural policy、um, of the Japanese、uh, government at the time.、Um, so, beginning in the nineteen in nineteen thirty seven, there was、um, heavy imposition of censorship, and so many of the guahi performers because they. Needed to survive,、um, they would. Of course, they were told to perform. For example, guahi in in、um, in Japanese language.、Um, they were told to、um, make sure that the characters in the plays,、uh, the, you know, they are Japanese people like samurai, geisha.、Um, they are to、uh, use Western music or use Japanese music, and. But then, of course,、um, for the audience of that time, that was not what they wanted to see, and the guahi performers knew that.、Um, so, so every time,、um, what happened was that you know the guahi performers they would begin performing a proper guahi play,、um, but then the minute they、um, knew that、um, a police would be coming to inspect their performance, they was they would instantly switch to perform、um, the Japanese version of the play. And once the police left, they would then switch back to the original version they were doing. So after a period of time, you know, this constant switching between you know the Japanese version and the more Chinese version,、um, eventually this switch become、uh, becomes a, a genre 
uh, in self. And that's what we know today as operahi. So opera is actually a transliteration of the Japanese word opera. So opera drama. Um, and opera drama is, the aesthetics is very eclectic. Um, and it's comedic. Um, so like in, in a full day's um, guahi program, so in the morning, usually the more serious, more proper guahi would be performed. And usually in the evening, that's when operahi would be performed. Um, and then so you get to hear all kinds of jokes. Um, or, you know, like the actors would comment on um, current events, um, and in the in opera performances, um, you will see that time doesn't travel in straight line. Time travels in zigzag. So you see people from different period in different periods of costume costume um, would appear on on the stage together. So you could see like samurai or a cowboy um, standing on the same stage performing. It doesn't matter whether, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of historical accuracy, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the audience is entertained and uh, they can go home and um, enjoy the rest of their evening. So that's guahi and operahi. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you, Pelin, for this uh, wonderful introduction. And then even though this is a performance art, but just based on your description, it already sounds so much fun in terms of the um, the aesthetics or in terms of the different arrangement. And then as you mentioned that this genre of a local performance and then can be a reservoir for cultural memory, for historical events, and in a way that to... Uh, publicize something and then in the colonial time as you mentioned you know the need to include uh, the Japanese language and also uh, change the uh, music arrangement and also include character maybe samurai as well and uh, but very interestingly uh, in relation to guahi you mentioned the uh, aperahi so in a way that this kind of creative genre that include both the local art performance and also some of the uh, Japanese uh, elements, but in a way that, you know, there's kind of like a creative fusion 
to some degree, is also this、uh, resistance as well, because they're kind of switching back and forth as entertainment, but also in a way that to sort of deal with and also in response to the、um, authoritarian、uh, demand for the Japanese、uh, element to be included in the show. So with the uh, the uh, local art form, you mentioned the koahi and also oprahi, and then、uh, the Golden Bow Theater contemporary try to、uh, recover and also reclaim and to be reconnected to these、uh, local elements. Another aspect of Taiwan, another culture that is historically being repressed. Censored and also stigmatized, it's also the、uh, indigenous culture as well. And then with that, I believe we're now moving to the next chapter. That's chapter、uh, four. It's about the ritualized, a ritualized body, and also the uh, indigenous uh, elements included in the performance. So, can you tell us a little bit about the ritualized body and also the artwork? The performance act, and also the、uh, group that you analyze in this book.、Hmm. Um, so, for the chapter on ritualized bodies, I focus on the work of、um, Adal Palav um, Nagasan. Um, so, he is an Amis、um, performer. Um, a director, a playwright. He wears many hats.、Um, so when I met first met Adal, I actually met him in Dulan,、um, on the east coast of Taiwan. And of course, later on,、um, he moved back to his hometown in Hualien,、um, Dabalang or Taibalang.、Um, so in that. Particular chapter on ritualized bodies. I examined、uh, Adal's work with、um, the Amis community in Dulan,、um, and、um, what was very interesting about his work、uh, with the community is his emphasis on、um, putting back、uh, a very dismembered and very fragmented indigenous body.、Um, By going back to the rituals、um, that people used to practice in the past,、um, I have to say many of these rituals have been lost, except for Giluma'an、uh, uh, in Chinese, as known as Fonianqi.、Um, so, as far as Adal is concerned,、um, he felt that the rituals are very important.、Um, rituals take time. It's time consuming,、um, but it's very important in the sense that it teaches people the order of the cosmos. And when the indigenous people、um, lose that ritualized bodies,、um, you can get very lost because rituals are ways.、Um, To stay connected to the ancestral spirits and also to their culture、um, and especially、um, oral tradition,、um, and also rituals、um, teach people to be reverent、um, towards you know nature, the larger cosmos,、um, and so so for him、um, the the key.、Um, Idea or the the way to really return or to find back 
um, lost indigenous bodies is to, to return to the community, to return to the um, the elders in the community, and also to the indigenous ritual practices. And so um, in his work with uh, Dulan San Tuan or Maladao Theatre, so Maladao is a holy mountain in, in Dulan, um, so was that a lot of his work actually centered on the community. So he would collect stories. So he used a lot of stories from uh, Ami's legends. Um, and he also collected a lot of fieldwork uh, with the indigenous communities. And after that, he gathered um, the communities together to improvise. Um, so for example, um, uh, he dramatized in, in the play that I talked about in the chapter, he dramatized the legend of the two sons. So um, according to the legend, at the very beginning, there were two sons. One son is a, a sister, the other son is a brother. But because they um, appear together, um, you know, the whole world suffered. Um, so eventually, um, a, um, a fighter, a warrior from the village, um, shot down one of the sons and the the, the brother sign so the brother sign eventually become um, the moon um, so in adults work he would interweave um, legends with Amis legends with the contemporary um, plight of the indigenous people so in the play we also see um, indigenous youth who got very lost when they came to the cities to work um, and so they, they lost their languages, they lost their roots, uh, they lost their connections with the community. And so uh, so that's why the play is called Where's the Way? It's why Gulalan. Um, so where's the way? How can we go forward? Where's the path that we should tread down? Um, so these are all the questions that um, Adal was very interested in. Um, so that's in terms of the story, um, in terms of, um, and also in terms of the way they create performances. Um, in terms of language, um, Adal relied a lot on oral tradition. He um, is also a great proponent of cultural immersion. So instead of you know, for example, learning your ancestral language in a classroom setting from a te- textbook. Um, he wanted to create um, an environment in which people get to interact with their communities, get to be immersed in their cultural practices. Um, so it's a deep immersion, it's not a superficial relearning of one's own culture. Um and so he, that's why he also, uh, he's also a great proponent of you know, life, theater is life and life is theater. And, um, and through theater, through life, people come to learn about rituals, about um, the way to be in life. Um, and in the process of writing um, plays, actually, so, so in the first play that he created, it was very much based on oral tradition, so there was not a lot of um, script being written. But in the second um, play, which I talked about in the chapter, The Great Deluge, <clears throat> that play, he, um, he worked with a translator, so he started writing in Mandarin first, in Mandarin Chinese first, and then he worked with a translator. Um, but eventually, in the process, he began 
he began this journey of uh, learning his own ancestral language. Um, I remember he told me, you know, he um, spent a lot of time studying an Amis dictionary from cover to cover. And so by the time um, he finished creating the Great Deluge, um, he was able to write um, in Amis. Um, and that was something that he continued to do. Um, of course, in a different chapter, I talked about the joyous bodies when he began to work with um, the indigenous uh, school in, back in Tapalang. Yeah, so that's, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and especially thinking about the emphasis on ritual, and then you um, analyze it beautifully that this ritual and then the sense of time and also the order of the universe in a way that is to connect and orient uh, the community in touch with their roots and then in touch with their ancestor. And then through this connection or through this reconnection, especially also the oral tradition is involved. So the storytelling, and as you mentioned, the use of language to learn and also reclaim the language in the emergent form. So I think these are all very important aspects to thinking about how body is ritualized and how that connect uh, individual performance to community, to their roots as well. And then uh, with that, so uh, moving on, there's another aspect in Taiwan that is another ethnic community. So Taiwan is a very diverse uh, place that in terms of language, ethnicity, cultural, and um, differences in everyday life. Another uh, one of the group is the Hakka group. And in relation to the Hakka community, you analyze the work and then also analyze this concept of the reproductive body. So uh, Pailin, can you tell us more about this reproductive body and also the uh, Hakka element in these works? Um, so for that particular chapter on reproductive bodies, I examined the works by uh, Shigang Mama Theater. Um, so Shigang Mama Theater actually founded their theater company after the um, the huge earthquake that struck Taiwan on September 21st. Um, so um, what happened was after, right after the earthquake, um, the government sent uh, theater artists, you know, not just theater artists, but also like art, visual artists, musicians um, into uh, areas devastated by the earthquake. So Sugan was one of the areas um, where uh, theater practitioners went um, to conduct this uh, post-earthquake trauma recovery program. And so at the end of 2000, um, a group of women, local women in Shigang, they founded their own theater company and they called themselves the Shigang Mamas um, because um, these women, they are housewives, they are caregivers, um, they are um, theater makers as well as earthquake survivors. Um, So... In the very beginning of their theater practice, they mostly addressed their experience of the earthquake and how you know they lived before the earthquake and also after the earthquake. And then gradually their work kind of shifted focus to um, their gender role within the community as well as within the traditional Hakka culture. Um, and... Um, 
the the kind the kind of methods um, that they use in making theater or techniques or practices they or approaches they adopted for making theater um, a lot of it come from uh, theater of the oppressed um, which was um, first invented by Augusto Boyle a Brazilian theater director and also theater facilitator uh, they also used um, many adopted many techniques from applied theater, like for example, playback theater um, and the different genres of uh, theater of the oppressed, like image theater, foreign theater. Um, so that was the beginning of um, the Sugar Mama theater. Um, so in the chapter, I looked at uh, the uh, second full-scale production, which is called Pear Blossoms. Um, the performance was premiered in the year 2000, and four, and uh, until and then they toured this performance quite regularly um, until two thousand seven. So in two thousand seven, they actually took the performance to Hong Kong. Um, and so in the performance in the play, um, we have three main characters, and these characters uh, represent they are or they represent the different facets of the Shigam Mamas themselves. So in the play, we have a traditional Hakka woman wearing a blue coat. So she represents uh, she represents these um, ideal Hakka woman who is virtuous, um, who carries. Uh, in the play, you'll see like uh, she carries a heavy wooden box, which symbolizes um, the burden of expectation, the burden of memories. Um, in the play, there's also another character, um, a butto bride, a bride wearing a heavy white makeup. Throughout the performance, she doesn't speak at all, um, but she performs a lot. Um, she dances. Um, she um, she's very much engaged in her movement, um, and she wears a as you know. If she dances, she actually, if you pay attention, um, she actually wears a pair of men's shoes. And um, of course, in the process of performing the play, the Butoh bride eventually takes off the shoes and dances freely. And then there's another character uh, with a pear seller. Um, so, in fact, the performer who is who plays the pear seller or the pear grower um, is performing her very self. So. In the play, we have different facets of Mama's life. So the Hakka woman, traditional woman, represents the the kind of expectation that people have um, about this group of uh, Mamas, Sugar Mamas. Um, the Butoh bride actually represents the psychological aspect of the Mamas, uh, which they seldom express in their everyday life. And then, you know, their desires, their dreams, their hopes... Um, and and of course the uh, the pear seller represents um, the real side, the practical aspect of the mama's life. So you know every day they have to go into their farms to take care of the pears. Um, during the typhoon seasons, they have to try to salvage their pears to reduce their financial loss. Um, so these different you know three different portraits intertwined together that's mama's life um so and this production actually really looked at the notion of the idea of the mamas uh 
reproductive and also productive body. So re- reproductive in the sense that you know cho- women have to bear children, and they have to take care of the family so that they are reproductive in that way. But on the other hand, they are also expected to be productive. They work in outside, uh, outdoors, in the field, um, as uh, expected by Hakka tradition. A woman has to look after the household as well as working, uh, you know, doing hard labor outside in the field. Um, and so through their theater practice, these group of mamas, they examined their gender role within the larger society, within the larger um, um, Hakka cultural sphere. And through their performance, they come to a better understanding of their positionality. And as also through theater, they began to question and also find ways to change um, the kind of conditions they find themselves in. Um, so the so different from other bodies that I mentioned in the book, uh, the reproductive bodies. Um, are not an ideal body that they want to become. Uh, the reproductive bodies are bodies that they have, and they are rendering these bodies more visible on the stage for um, people to to become aware of the existence of the contribution of women um, to their families as well as to uh, their society. Yeah, so that's... Yeah. Mm. Mm. And especially when you talk about gender role, and then in this production, there's a three different aspect. And then um, I'm thinking about, as you mentioned, you have this reproductive, but also productive side of the gender role. And I'm thinking about this term labor. In a way, figuratively, women as a reproductive agent, you know, to be, as you mentioned, be a bride, be the kind of carrier of the family, caretaker, and also you mentioned as uh, for the Hakka women character, be the, uh, uh, have the burden for the expectation and also the memory, uh, the tradition and cultures. And the other side of the labor is this kind of productive side to, you know, have to work and then grow the pair and have to sell the pair and so on and so forth. So thinking about the gender role and then thinking about the different aspect of that gender role, that is actually these mama, they are expected to perform and to fulfill. And uh, thinking about that, and then so for the reproductive body, as you mentioned, it's not the quote-unquote ideal, but in a way that they are trying to make this visible, to make this uh, known to more people. So uh, we have, um, so we talk about three different um, bodies, and then now uh, I believe we still have a little bit of time left. Uh, Pelina was wondering, can you quickly tell us a little bit about the rhythmic body and a joyous body that uh, even though we do not have time to uh, fully unpack, but can you tell us a little bit about these two different bodies? Mm. Um, so maybe I will begin with joyous bodies because um, joyous bodies are tied to the ritualized bodies that I talked mm-hmm. about earlier. Um, so for Adele, um, in order to decolonize indigenous bodies, uh, one way is to return to the ritual practices 
of the indigenous people. Um, but another way is to be joyous. Um, I remember in one of my conversations with him, he talked about um, that he needed to find a way to elevate the indigenous people. Uh, the indigenous people can always be depressed or despondent. Um, they have to be joyous in order to combat the um, the, the kind of depression brought about by colonization. And uh, this is illustrated in his work with the children um, when he returned to his hometown, Tapalang, um, and where he created a, uh, a child's version of the Great Deluge. And so this version, the child's version, is very different from the adult version um, that he created when he was um, in, when he was still in Dulan. Um, in this child's version, there was a lot of uh, songs. There were a lot of songs and dance, um, and also you see like um, oratory, um, storytelling in the production. Um, the atmosphere that you get to feel in the in the play was very lively, very, very joyous, um, and the play is a child's eye view on, on colonization, in fact. Um, so in the play, uh, for example, um, you'll hear a lot of um, children's nursery rhymes. Um, so in one particular nursery rhyme, um, the child uh, was dancing, and uh, accidentally, the child fell down. And when he looked up, you know, he saw um, scenes that usually you wouldn't see um, when you were dancing. Uh, so he was looking at, um, uh, you know, the the private parts of, of the women dancers and also the um, the female the the male dancers, um, because in adults writing, like for example, bras and underwears, they are all references to uh, colonial forms of control, because in indigenous culture, people do not wear them, um, and so. So in a way, Adal was trying to look at the experience of colonization through the innocence of a child and also to query um, these forms of control as a child. And, also, and you know, this in turn allows him to kind of point out the absurdity of colonization, of humans' desire to, to control, to conquer, and to overcome. Um, so that's joyous bodies, um, and of course, in um, in his approach to creating joyous bodies, he believed, um, like I mentioned earlier, in uh, deep cultural immersion. So um, at school, he would teach um, the children different songs, different nursery rhymes. Um, he, he felt that songs, music, are the souls of indigenous culture. Um, without these songs, without these rhymes, um, the indigenous culture would have lost its souls. There would be no rhythm, there would be no sound, there would be no life. Um, so his approach was to teach songs and to immerse children in the songs. Um, so that's Joyous Bodies. Um, and then uh, rhythmic, with regard to rhythmic bodies, so in that particular chapter, I look at the work of Tanana Ensemble. Um, so very different from other uh, theater groups that I examined in this book, I um, 
looked at how the uh, importation of um, of uh, actor trainings from overseas are uh, being used to localize or to help um, local theater artists to find back a body that is not lethargic. <laughs> so earlier I mentioned about Wang Morlin's comment that, you know, the Taiwanese body is lethargic. It lacks energy. Um, so Golden Bao took one approach um, that is going back to the tradition, the roots of Guahi and Operahi. But in the case of Tainan Ensemble, um, they uh, actually um, adopted Western systems of um, actor training to find back or to rediscover the rhythm, the sounds um, of the Taiwanese bodies. Um, and of course, the approach to uh, localizing or reconceptualizing um, a Taiwanese body is very different um, in comparison to Golden Bow. Um, for example, uh, they um, would do... Um, Western classics or Western canons, like for example, Shakespeare plays or Greek plays um, in, in Holo. And through their work, they expand um, the, the expression of Holo culture in a way that is uh, unseen um, before by, you know, or not being done um, before. But of course, now we see more and more of these kind of uh, performances. But I think Tana Ensemble, when they did it, um, they were at the forefront of experimenting um, with uh, creating intercultural theater um, by using uh, their ancestral language, performing Western classics in their ancestral language. So that's uh, rhythmic bodies. Yeah, thank you, Pauline, for uh, uh, sharing with us the uh, different um reconceptualized bodies and also the uh, works that you analyze so wonderfully in your book. So moving on to our last portion of this interview is about your future project and what are you working on right now, Pailing? Well, I'm currently involved in several projects. Um, so one of them is a practice as research project. I call it Pro Body Art Making Lab. Um, I started the project actually since the pandemic. Um, this project is a following on of a previous project, which I did uh, called A Home on the Island. Um, and so in Pro Body Art Making Lab, I'm interested, I look at how um, health and wellness care can be integrated into art making. Um, so I'm very interested in integrating healthcare. Uh, wellness care with um, art making. So that's one one main project that I've been working on. Um, I've also been working on a digital archiving project in which I annotated uh, the performance Peer Blossoms. So yeah, so eventually you'll get to see Peer Blossoms online uh, with annotation. I'm also working on a multimedia essay on Peer Blossoms. So and also the sequel, uh, because the Shigang Mamas, after they uh, created Pear Blossoms, um, they took a break. And then um, it was in last year, they created their most recent production, The Heartland 
of pear blossoms. So, uh, so yeah, so, you know, do watch out for it. Eventually it will come out and be available um, for pe- to people to access. Um, and I hope that eventually I get to work on another book um, on pro body aesthetics. Um, so how can we be creative and be healthy, especially um, during the pandemic? I think it's uh, very important for us to consider how, how can we take care of ourselves. So that's my project. Yeah, they all sounds wonderful. And then especially the poor body athletics, it sounds very interesting and also super relevant uh, to our current um time and experience. And I also look forward very much to your uh, further engagement with Pear Blossom and then the further publication and access to that work. So uh, with that, uh, thank you, Pailin, for being on the show today. I really enjoy our conversation. Well, thank you, Liping, for inviting me. And I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. Thank you, so, indeed. Mm-hmm. So, um, I hope we see you next time. Until then, stay safe, take care, goodbye.